Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. Today's episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money around the world, which is huge for travelers. I've been a customer and a fan for 10 years. The Wise account helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, and they do it all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This service has been so critical for me in my life as a traveler, as a nomad, as somebody living abroad, and you can join 16 million customers and learn how the Wise account can help you out on the road at wise.com slash travel. That's wise, W-I-S-E dot com slash travel, or download the app. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Today, a seasonal job that's not for the faint of heart or people that like sleep, but one that could earn you 15 or $20,000 or more in just a two-month period. Yes, it's true. But with some of the dangers involved and the amount of hard work it is, maybe working on an Alaskan fishing boat isn't for everybody. If you've seen shows like The World's Deadliest Catch and some of these other shows, well, they're reality shows. But is a reality show a good representation of the actual experience? I wanted to talk to somebody who has done it and done it for many years. And I got to do that, which is one of the joys of this podcast. I get to, and you get to, experience something we might not ever experience in our lives, or maybe some of you will. Either way, when you listen in on today's conversation, I'm sure your spirit of adventure is going to awaken if it's not awakened already, and you'll hear why. This is one of my favorite types of podcasts to do. It's all happening now. Buckle up, strap in, get your sea legs ready, and welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey there, it's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks so kindly for spending a little time with me, hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears right now. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. Got a doozy for you today. One of my favorite types of interviews in person. What a joy. And you'll hear at the beginning of this interview how we actually met my new friend, Patrick, who's on the show today talking about his vast experience fishing in Alaska, what those jobs are like, how you get those jobs, how it can fuel travel, and get a real inside look at this industry and what it takes to make it. And outside of that, along the way, you know, we always talk travel. So you're going to get your weekly dose here. I'm so excited to have you Listening on this conversation, before we get into it, a quick thanks to Tortuga Backpacks for supporting today's show. You want 10% off the best backpacks out there, just go to zerototravel.com slash Tortuga, and that's going to take you to a page with the packs that I recommend. I have been using Tortuga Backpacks for, I think, about four years now, I figured out. 
absolutely love them. I've got the Tortuga Outbreaker Day Pack with me right now. You can hear it right here. Actually made out of sailcloth. So a little boat tie-in today since we're talking fishing in Alaska. These bags are awesome. ZeroToTravel.com slash Tortuga. When you check out, if you use the promo code TRAVEL, just the word TRAVEL, listeners of this show will get 10% off anything that you buy at Tortuga. They've got backpacks, some stuff sacks, duffel bags. I use the Tortuga Outbreaker, the Outbreaker Day Pack, the more packable minimal day pack that they have. I use that quite often. Their stuff's great. ZeroToTravel.com slash Tortuga, 10% off with the promo code TRAVEL. Thanks to Tortuga and the team over there for sponsoring this podcast. If you decide to purchase anything through that link, you'll also be supporting the show. And I thank you. And I, I am just glad to recommend their stuff because I do use it and I'm a fan. So there you go. If you want 10% off, you know how to do it. I'll leave those links in the show notes. All right, let's move on to today's conversation, which happened earlier today over breakfast. Please enjoy and I'll see you on the other side, my friend. Okay, I have the pleasure of sitting here right now with my guest today, who's a gentleman I just met uh, about five days ago when I was sitting in a, the Village Coffee Shop, Yep, I believe, in yep. Boulder, Colorado, where I'm visiting with my family. And uh, there's something I love to do is just to go out to breakfast and sit at a diner counter and just like do a solo diner, traditional diner counter breakfast. And uh, you always meet cool people. You always hear cool people talking next to you. And Patrick, you were working there. You were waiting on me and we got to talking and you got a really interesting story. So I said, hey, dude, let's meet up for breakfast again and have you on the podcast. So anyway, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast. Thank you, Jason. Yeah. Thanks for being here, man. We just chow down, actually. We're at the buff and we uh, started kind of chatting about travel. We didn't want to go too deep into it because you got a lot of stories. I said, all right, well, we'll hold this for the interview. Just to give people a little background, you have worked for a long time in the Alaskan fishing industry, and so we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about um, making money while you travel and using seasonal jobs to sort of fuel your travels and a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, thanks for taking the time, man. I wanted to ask you about growing up in Alaska, which is, by the way, the only state I haven't been to. I'm like, I feel like I have to make a dramatic entrance into Alaska because it's my last state. So I feel like I have to hitchhike there or like come on a boat or I don't know, maybe jump on your boat or something and get yeah, there. But You've uh, been building it up so much that you yeah. never pulled the trigger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I was born there and I was there until I was about three. And then my parents moved to Washington. Okay. But uh, my dad had has been fishing for 43 years, gill netting sockeye salmon in Bristol Bay. And when I was 13, uh, it's kind of the expected thing to do in my family. Uh, it'd be really weird if I wasn't fishing at that age. Okay, yeah. Despite it being pretty tough for a 13-year-old to be on one of those boats. <laughs> but my older brother did it, and we were both on the boat together. And so I went up. I mean, and- was like not fishing an option? I mean, like, uh, yeah. it was just like family pressure thing, like, or you wanted to do it. It wasn't like they would disown me if I didn't fish. Like right. my brother ran a lawn mowing business for a couple of years in high school. Uh, and didn't fish, but I, I don't know. It, it was a really good option too. You know, when you're like 17, you can come home with 15 grand or something, and all your friends were just like working at the water slides, right? It for was five bucks an hour or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and it's always June and July, so it works with school. 
so it just seemed like a clear choice. And also I knew I was going to be going to college and still have that summer job. And, right. you know, your cruise share generally increases when you return. So by the time I was 18, I was making a full cruise share. Uh, it's hmm. kind of too sweet to pass up. Right. However, there was a little bit of a expectation. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I mean, this is like a family tradition, it sounds yeah. like. So I, I didn't grow up with something like that. So I was just curious because, uh, yeah, I didn't have that type of upbringing in my family. You got on the boats when you were 13 years old. Now, what was that first experience like? <laughs> uh, I got seasick a lot. But yeah. uh, also... That's the worst kind of yeah. sickness. It's also the worst when you're not like on a three-hour boat ride and you know you're going to come home to shore right and you know that you're going to be on the boat for a month <laughs> it's a lot different yeah but it was like i was the coach's kid because my dad was the captain so it's kind of tough for the other crew because i got to skip out on the hard parts a lot yeah and curl up like in my bunk for four days at a time when i was seasick but if anybody's ever been seasick like you physically can't really do anything it's almost like the but you're, you have to i guess if you're out yeah that's hardcore. Yeah. I mean, now... It's a terrible I, feeling. I still get seasick. Do you? Every year. It's kind of like getting car sick, too. Like, if you're driving the boat, you're way less likely. You're not yeah. getting like, car sick in your own car, really. Right. Uh, but I still get seasick when I'm, like, fixing some... I got my, like, head in a hole fixing something. Okay. But it's a, it's a lot more mental than I thought it was really? initially. Like, if my crew gets seasick, I'm just like, chug water, chug Gatorade, and then keep working. Because if you're working, it can go away. Yeah. If you like lie down in the hole, you're just going to be in your little horrible headspace eternally. Right. You know, right. Until you're done being on the water. Yeah. It's a serious concern, I guess. I mean, you, it sounds like you get over it. Is that what they mean when they say get your sea legs? It's like get over the seasickness. And- yeah. I, I kind of think the way I see it go with my crew most of the time is the roughest weather they've seen if they get seasick when it's super rough out yeah. anything after that they're kind of like mentally okay with okay yeah so i kind of like when there's a big rough day early on in the season then the whole rest of the year they just have that in the back of their mind that it's okay right they've gotten through like the hardest one of the hardest days early on type of thing yeah that can be bad though too cuz you know there's other parts like safety where you want to work up to it being rough like i had a buddy grip the railing super hard and he didn't let the boat move underneath him. And he got like hypertension in his wrists oh, from really? holding, gripping so hard. And they had to snip tendons in both his wrists. Oh All right. Yeah. This is something we need to talk about is some of the dangers involved. I mean, I'm sure people listening are familiar with these shows yeah. that have been out and popularized uh, Alaskan fishing over the years. I can't, I, I never watched them, so I can't remember the name of them. Mm-hmm. We're going to, we should talk about the reality of the Alaskan fishing experience versus what you see on TV. But I want to hear a little bit more about, all right, so you're on the boat, you're 13 years old, you're sick. Are you like, what have I got myself into? Like, obviously you push past that. But how long have you been working on boats now doing the fishing thing? So when I was a kid, my dad also commercial crabbed for Dungeness Crab in Puget Sound, Washington. Okay. And if you're familiar with Puget Sound, it's very protected. So that's not, you know, it's colder in the winter than it is in the summer in Alaska. But um, I would just go out for little day trips then. But really working on the boats from the age of 13 to 23 I was a crew okay and then my brother bought a boat and I hopped off my dad's cushy boat to go help my brother with his horrible little (laughs) 1970s boat it was like the Forrest Gump shrimping boat or something (laughs) it was so (laughs) bad like really you had to hacksaw off every bolt on the whole thing we didn't miss a single day fishing somehow but there was like leaks above the bunks so we had garbage bags inside our sleeping bags 
and we definitely earned our money that year. But yeah. um, after that, a different boat owner who owned a boat saw me as a potential hired skipper. So they they thought I had what it took to run their investment, and uh, which is a pretty scary gamble because my first year I had no idea what I was doing. And right. I got the boat into a bunch of bad situations. But then I got to be the hired skipper of that boat for five years. And just last year, I bought my own boat. Okay, congratulations. Thank you. So what is the hierarchy of positions, just so we know the terminology? Yeah, you know, the main hierarchy is just captain and crew. Normally, a boat has two or three crew. My boat has three crew. Um, normally, you have like a higher paid crew who's been there for longer. Uh, like I have guys who know how to mend the nets <laughs> or they're mechanical or something like that. Um, and they can make 10 or 12%. Right. And if you have a totally new person who has no experience, um, like I hired a 15 year old and paid him 3%. Right. Because for him, it's, you know, he's not of anywhere near as much value as my returning guy. He's not going to contribute as much. Is that typical uh, when you're bringing somebody new who hasn't done it before, they're just going to get a lesser percentage because they're kind of learning on the job, right? You have to earn your... Yeah, exactly. And also... With commercial fishing, there's some particular skills that there's no way that you'll know how to do them until you are up there doing them. And you only have about a month or two to learn that skill, like detangling salmon out of a net. You know, some people have are inherently a little bit quicker of learners, like MMA fighters or wrestlers are really quick with their hands. Yeah, okay. And they're good at dialing in movements and conserving energy. But still, you just got to do it. (laughs) <laughs> this is crazy. All right. So well, I want to hear a little bit more about travel for you because it sounds like this has been a huge part of your life, the fishing thing, going uh, for the summers and fishing in between school. Growing up, you mentioned that your family traveled a lot. I feel like you have to have a spirit of adventure to do these types of jobs, to go out on a, on a boat, for example. How did traveling start for you? Because you, you were saying you were in Mexico, you've been in Colombia. I don't know where all you've been in the world, but it sounds like you've been around quite a bit. How did the whole travel thing start for you? Your family did that with you growing up? or Yeah, we kind of took every opportunity we had to travel. Both my parents worked in education. My dad was a professor at Western Washington University. And my What did mom, he teach? He taught uh, physical education, so he taught PE teachers how to teach. Okay. Uh, and my mom was the, my high school counselor. So they had the same schedule as my brother and I. So we could always do an extended winter break and some, oh, okay. or, you know, after fishing, we'd do stuff. Yeah, you guys were in school and they were in education. So yeah. And I think us all fishing together really changed the way we traveled. Um, for instance, we'd go on some sailing trip where the boat is like minimum viable product to make it over the water <laughs> and we'd like work together as a family to keep the thing running okay yeah. super janky but you mean so like your trip would be you guys would rent a sailboat somewhere and just go out on it type we just of thing? always yeah. had a couple boats in washington okay. right that were like called the hobo or like the zumba and they're just covered in rust and like the <laughs> engine halfway works and you're like making a sail out of a carpet to get right. home or something you know but the collective family knowledge is enough to <laughs> keep it afloat <laughs> yeah. essentially yeah. and we're accustomed <laughs> to working together in that environment so <laughs> uh so we do those kind of adventure trips that were a little less cush, you know, right. because of that. Uh, right. I'm mostly inspired by my dad, but my mom was always concerned that we were going to die. Okay. The whole yeah. Time. That, as mothers usually are. Yeah. Yeah. More concerned anyway. Yeah. And she had fair reason to believe that my dad <laughs> <laughs> wasn't going to be too cautious. Somehow he talked her into all these trips, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, and with fishing money, we were able to travel internationally a bit. And um, now my dad lives down in Guatemala, so I visit him really? occasionally. And he, he lives in a spot where there's no roads, so you get around all by boat. Um, 
very remote spot. Where, where does he live? He lives in Rio Dulce, Guatemala. It's the northeastern um, part that's right near the Caribbean coast. It's a really good way to go sailing around the uh, Caribbean. But to get there, I think it's a lot easier to get to a lot of parts of India than it is really? to his spot there. Because you have to take a, you have to fly to Guatemala City, take an eight-hour bus ride, and then an hour-and-a-half skiff ride. And then from there, like, you can't really... You can't Have you gone anywhere. to visit him? A couple times, yeah. What is, why does he want to be so isolated down there? Just his personality? or Yeah, I don't know. Him and my mom had a falling out, so I, don't, I think that might have inspired it a little bit. Yeah. Um, but also, you just don't have to mess with anything. You know, he makes his money fishing, and then you can live super cheaply down there, and he's got a sailboat, and yeah. uh, it's a very mellow lifestyle with a bunch of expats. I'm kind of like putting myself in your shoes growing up traveling in this way. Did it give you a really strong identification? Like when you think travel, you must kind of think more like adventure. Things might happen. You're you're not thinking, oh, well, you know, your family didn't grow up putting you in four-star hotels and going to, you know, whatever water park. You guys are going out on some sailboat that may or may not sink. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I definitely seek that out a little bit. Yeah. Like, I mean, do you think that your adventurous spirit with in terms of travel came from your background yeah. like that? Well, I mean, fishing totally changes your whole perception of what's okay. Like you have this crazy tolerance after this um, very, things can be kind of traumatic there. Yeah. So it like redefines in your life, like what's acceptable. You know? Tra- traumatic in what way? You just like, can, can you, be can really you... uncomfortable and tired for a long okay, time, yeah. you know, sleep deprived, you're working super hard. So now when I go traveling, I'm like, I'm okay with being wet and having like a right. you know semi-functioning tent in the jungle for a couple weeks or something you know it just I, it re- sort of redefines your baseline of comfort yeah in a way yeah totally which can be a little tiresome for my girlfriend because <laughs> <laughs> we went to like we should have her here <laughs> yeah i know well she's about to go on the boat so she'll uh she'll have that experience to draw mm-hmm. from but uh yeah when we went down to south america she did the first she did the planning for the first half in colombia and it was you know a little calmer and comfortable and then I got to choose what we did in Brazil, which is just like super uncomfortable <laughs> jungle treks where we're getting dominated by bugs the whole time. <laughs> uh, relationship test number one. What do you one. like about that? What do you like about that style of travel? You know, I think it's the same kind of motivations that some people have for getting into mountaineering and rock climbing that you kind of like see, like putting some somebody into a situation that they can handle, but it is a struggle for them. You get to see different parts of their personality. And also the people that you encounter... You encounter the world in a different way. Like you encounter the locals in a different way. If you roll up looking a little haggard and you need their help. Kind of like you've been through some stuff. Yeah. Right. You know, you can, I'm not against the prescribed trip, like the the tourist circuit, the so-called tourist circuit in whatever country, but uh, you definitely have a different experience. And I kind of like, I kind of like grinding in it a little bit more. Yeah. Like taking yourself, sort of pushing yourself uh, to some uncomfortable place. Yeah. And it forces you to have to interact with people. Like we were in the jungle in Brazil and, uh, I also don't plan too well. Sometimes we didn't have enough food really. Oh, okay. And we came That's to a, a spot where we couldn't get away. <laughs> um, we had to hike out a couple days through the jungle cause a big storm came. So we didn't have any, we couldn't take a boat ride back. It's right. called Ila Grande, South of Rio. Yeah. And we were using headlamps. I know that place i've been there oh on that trail gone. to the beach yeah, yeah yeah so you did you get stuck on that beach you're an adventurero on the far side of the island and okay I, I was trying to i can speak spanish but i you know as a lot of people figure out it's not the same language or even close <laughs> to, portuguese. to portuguese so i was knocking on doors of houses trying to get like a potato or an egg and then i made a net out of uh 
a plastic trash bag with a bunch of holes in it, and we were using a headlamp catching shrimp to like make our dinner that night. Yeah? And my girlfriend was really? a little uh, pissed off at me at that point. <laughs> did you have a good dinner, though? We, we did. We didn't have any spices, so it wasn't exactly like a Cajun, right. the Cajun gumbo that I had imagined. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it worked out. Yeah, I mean, it's handy to have a fisherman boyfriend, I guess, you know, that can just grab a plastic bag and turn it into some shrimp net. <laughs> I, I don't know. That's glorifying it a little bit, too. It's, uh, it was, That's <laughs> it was great. pretty janky in that stream that night. Uh, what's something that stands out to you? And, and maybe you can share a story. Maybe this is a big question. It probably is maybe too big of a question. But something with your travels or your fishing experiences that... I mean, you mentioned like those experiences sort of redefining your baseline of like comfort and experiences when it comes to travel. Any big experiences you've had either on the boat or traveling that kind of stand out to you as like redefining who you are as a person? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I've really tried to become conscious of this phenomena lately and for the last five years or so captaining. Um, because captaining, you're the one responsible for the mood and the morale of the boat. And the one thing that hmm. I'm trying to grow above is to not mentally crack. Because if I crack, then what does the crew have? It's the ripple effect. Exactly. Like, I have to always look solid. And if I am, maybe one of the crew is struggling, but we it normally works out fine. And still, even last year... I had a situation that kind of pushed me over the edge and I was like, I was crying on the boat, yeah. you know, and my crew well, What, what happened? So last year, the fish didn't come into a lot of rivers in Alaska, like in any significant number. And they came to Bristol Bay, but a lot later than normal. And Damn. it was my first year with the boat. So I had a lot of upfront expense. Granted, I knew what I was doing because I already had five years experience. But, but now you're a business owner. This is all your responsibility, right? Yeah, so yeah, it changes so I, things. I was feeling the fire under my ass to make right. some money. Right. And uh, you normally have about half your season done, July 7th or so. And, uh, you know, on a typical year, you catch 100, 100 to 200,000 pounds of fish. On July 8th, we had about 6,000 pounds of fish, which wow. is about 10% oh of what wow. I'd hoped to have or less right. at that time. And also it was a very rough year out of my dad's 42 years doing it. It was the roughest season. And I had a 15-year-old on board and we were just kind of struggling and not catching fish. And I, and then on July 8th, we had a really good day and I kind of, I made a move that I was very happy with and we caught about 7,000 pounds when the that rest of the- basically doubled. Yeah, doubled day. our season. Right. Um, and also it was kicking us off in the direction and morale was super high. Also, I did something that the rest of the fleet wasn't really doing. So we had a particularly good day. And as much as I don't want to judge myself relative to the other boats, it totally happens. And I feel like I did well if I did better than the fleet. Right. But as we were on our high horse, uh, <laughs> one of my crew members accidentally spilled like 20 gallons of diesel into, into the tank oh, uh, holding the fish. So we had to dispose of 4,000 pounds of fish. And uh, keep in mind, we're also on a sleep schedule where we sleep about an hour, hour and a half in the day. And then like two or three at night at that point in the season and we had to skip our night sleep and lose that money because we had to clean out the holds and more than anything you know like crew members make and lose money for you all the time that one felt really bad for him because it was a direct clear his fault loss right but he had the ability to make up for it which he did afterwards um 
But then the next day we went out and it was super rough and I was kind of like racing to get out there because we didn't have any sleep. And a wave came, a really big wave came and I didn't throttle back and the wave blew through all the windows on our uh, and on the cabin of our boat and filled our boat up to like the bunks with water and uh, like peppered the interior with glass and broke a bunch of stuff. And then you got salt water on the wiring. Oh, so man. we had to do two all-nighters in a row and it was really rough on the dock and I had to put plywood boards over the window and uh, pull another all-nighter. And then as we were driving out the next day, I just called my girlfriend to like tell her what happened, you know, and she's in Boulder in the summer and it's super nice. And I just like broke down crying. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't handle it. I can imagine. And that's was, a crazy series of events over like a basically 72 hour period. Yeah. And I was so tired and I was like starting to like pee like dark brown, even though I was drinking a lot of water. Really? And I was, and I was kind of like delusional. And also I knew that I was going to have to hop back on that like three or four hours of sleep schedule from that point. So I didn't have any way to like recharge. And that's when all the fish came. That's when it all mattered. And I was just feeling the weight of the world. And then my crew was looking at me and that 15 year old, like, is, is everything ruined? When right. it wasn't, like right. we could totally fish from that point on and I just lost it. And that was another one of those unproductive moments that seems to keep happening despite yeah. me thinking I'm stronger than that. I mean, I think what you just described could break anybody, you know, <laughs> in, in, yeah. a, in a way. But up there, there's, there's these like super hardcore guys that are just infallible and you're yeah. comparing yourself to them and... Right, but it's hard that, to keep up sometimes. Is that fair? Is that a fair comparison, you know? Because every individual has their own sort of emotional spectrum, right? And mm-hmm. Totally. And it's not productive. Like, is, to, is, is showing vulnerability on a boat like that frowned upon? Do you have to be like the steely, no. unemotional? No. You, you know, like the, what I aspire to be is that smooth captain who doesn't drive too fast into a wave and blow the windows out in the first place. <laughs> 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 uh, but you know, my crew respect me because uh, you know, and being emotional is okay with them. Yeah. But when you're trying to go battle like ten foot waves or something, and I'm crying, that's not the productive thing to be doing right there. Right. And it's not helping things. Well, this is this whole other dynamic where you're you're also the leader, and your energy affects their energy. I'm sure. And wow. So how did that how did that experience change you as a person? Just another one of those things that. I know it's going to be okay if I was faced with that situation again. Right. Um, you got past it. Things went on. So yeah, you know, we just had plywood windows and right, right. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's not all good. I I never could go inside the boat the rest of the season, which was kind of stressful because I had to always drive out in the weather. Okay. And for the long days, that can kind of wear on you. Sounds brutal, man. Yeah. But you know, I my bunk made it out all right i still had a foam mattress the the two of my crew had to sleep on wool blankets so the rest of the year <laughs> the plywood i do respect the fishery for things like that because i think it is really cool for your life to like have to go through struggles maybe yeah. not that intense that that's maybe more than i would like but uh i don't know i still when the season's coming up i dread it sometimes you know it's, right. a, it's a love-hate thing yeah yeah. What is the percentage there? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. What's Wait, the split? Depends on when we talk to you. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the day after the season, it's the best thing ever because I yeah. just made all the money and I don't have to work that hard for another 10 months. Right. But uh, if you talk to me on about May 15th, <laughs> I might be losing sleep having boat boat dreams already <laughs> slash nightmares. All right. So what is the typical season date-wise? Um, I normally get up there about June 1st or so to get the boat ready. You know, some guys go a little bit later than that if their boat's a little more dialed in. 
Uh, you start fishing about June 20th, and uh, that normally goes to what, July 20th, July 25th. Okay, so you're talking about a, a month out on the boat. Yeah, it's pretty short. Let's let's get into the whole fishing thing. I mean, we've already been talking about it, but I just have some sort of yeah questions around like getting the jobs and what some of the benefits are. We mentioned some of the challenges, which you've already heard. People are probably running away, throwing their headphones off, saying, this isn't for me, but hang on. It's good to know these things. And it's either way, if you're not ever going to do it, one thing I love about having this podcast is I get to talk to people like you, Patrick. And like, I probably will never work on a fishing boat in Alaska. Who knows? Maybe. But I get to, I feel like I get to have somewhat of that experience just through you and hearing about it. Let's talk about the pay because that's always a thing that perks people's ears up. And it sounds like you can make pretty good money within a two month period. And you've been doing this to fuel your um, education, going to school here, amongst uh, traveling and other things. Um, what is the typical pay for... Like, you want to just give us an overview on Yeah, on yeah, yeah. So uh, it's all crew share based, which I love, you know. It, for anyone who's worked in a restaurant, you know the value of people um, making more the harder they work and what that does to uh, the work environment. So, you know, the average crew share is like 10% or so. That being said... You mean... Um, 10% of whatever you're going to sell the fish for yeah. goes to the crew. And if you have five people on the crew, that means they each get 2%. They each get 2%? No, no, no. Or it's they not each 10% get... divided by the crew. Okay. So, so these crew shares on different fisheries work differently. And I'm only going to speak to gill netting because that's what I'm intimately familiar with in Bristol Bay. There's other types of fishing jobs that last longer. That right. You this is make. a very general overview you're giving. So yeah. we can't apply it to everything. Yeah. But... I can just talk about like how my boat works. Okay. Um, you know, and, and people within Bristol Bay pay their crew differently too. Like there's some guys who have ex, like super gracious captains who pay them 15% when they're new guys, which I would never do. Right. But either way, do. there's some kind of crew share type yeah. percentage. Yeah, 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 exactly. So you catch your fish um, throughout the season. At the end of the season, the price of the fish is uh, decided upon by the canneries. Kind of a, unfortunately, it seems like a little bit of price fixing to me. Right. Because they have now all the product. Yeah, you have to sell this to somebody. Yeah. We don't need to go down that hole right now. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, the price of fish is decided, and that's kind of like the big number at the end of the year everyone's looking for. Uh, mm. You know, say so you get $1.50 a pound and you catch 100,000 pounds, that means your boat grossed 150K. Right. And the crew are making 10% minus some expenses, so they make, you know, 14K or something. Right. That's, that's like a. It's all uh, percentage based. They don't get an hourly or anything, right? No, it's just no, it's what all percentage. You take at the end. So also you got to factor in some boats require you to come up really early to do a bunch of boat work so some guys are like included yeah that's included in your share, which is still worth it most of the time but also there's some boats that don't do very well the the variance of how the boats do is massive it's like like any other certain businesses are run better than others and these boats are businesses but this is even more dramatic like there's some boats that barely generate a profit and then there's some just like slayer boats that catch four hundred thousand pounds every year and their crew makes 60k in a month and a half or two which is rare. There's only a couple of those. Right. But, you know, the, the battle to be in that top 15% is pretty real. And it's a hyper-competitive fishery. So you're up there, like, duking it out with these guys, essentially. So that's, like, the extreme high end. The extreme low end might be a couple thousand bucks you or something. You didn't make your plane flight. The average person, maybe between 10 and 20? Yeah. 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 Ish? Yeah, yeah. Something okay. like that. You know, and if... After cr- two, two months of work, maybe a little more with the boat... Yeah. Uh, work. Yeah. And also you got to factor in how the crew uh, 
uh, share. So if you're the new guy, it's not going to be like that. Like right. normally crew guys make like five, eight, something like that. Right. Which, you know, it doesn't seem super appealing for somebody who's already got um, some other kind of job you can make that much in in the summer and not subject yourself to that kind of environment. <laughs> right. <laughs> Unless you're looking for that kind of environment. Well, this is the thing. This uh, Typically, does, is this attracting people that are looking for that kind of adventure yeah. inherently, right? Or do you get the, I guess you get the occasional sort of clueless person that shows up thinking it's going to be a cakewalk or you've yeah, probably seen a lot over the years. Yeah. How you pick people is a very interesting thing, but you definitely have a lot of interest from people who are, you know, interested in being a Navy SEAL or something like that. And they're right. just seeking out the most uh, difficult environment possible, which from my side of things is actually a pretty good person to hire. Sure. But absolutely. Um, but also you get, you know, totally average people that most people could relate to, you know, like, um, you must see a transformation from the beginning of the season to a, from an, a rookie yeah. to that person at the end. Yeah, and also, yeah, I, I, it's a really interesting thing living on a 32-foot boat. It's like you're living in a bathroom with four guys. <laughs> right. Um, sounds, sounds great. <laughs> yeah, you really, really know them. And right. also, there's not very much technology. Like, there's not cell phones. I mean, there are, some of the captains have, like, a flip phone so right. you can okay. contact the other boats. But you get their full attention, you know? We're it's, sitting there, it's like... It's also, like, you get to interact with each other. Yeah, we, know. like... I mean, I'm sure most boats aren't doing this, but we like read aloud a Western novel in our spare time in Western accents. It was like a thousand page one called Lonesome Dove last year. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it brings out a lot of things in people that you don't get to see otherwise. Yeah. yeah. I'm, it's unfortunate that I had to lead off with all the traumatic stories. No, that's not, okay. Well, of course, there's camaraderie and bonding and all that, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, um, Anytime you do anything difficult with people, it forms some kind of bond. It does. Hopefully a good one. I mean, if you look at travel as an example, if you go through even just a couple rough days of traveling with somebody, mm-hmm. rough, bu- even a one overnight bus ride that was hellish, you know, you're kind of bonded a little bit because you've been through this experience. And that's just, you know, an overnight bus. Like imagine when you're spending two months on a boat with people and going yeah. through all kinds of stuff every day. Yeah. Getting back to um, how much people make and how people get those jobs, I'd like to elaborate while yeah. we're kind of near that topic. Um, you know, in Boulder, Colorado here, it sounds like this crazy job, but if you went to like Washington state, it's a much more common thing for people to do. So it's a little more approachable. Okay. Um, getting a job can be kind of difficult, but if you really care to, you can do it. Um, obviously if you know somebody owns a boat, you can, you know, really try your best to get on their boat, but I still don't hire all my friends. Like there's certain friends that I just don't want to put in that environment. I know a lot of people who've gone on Craigslist and scoured all the towns in Alaska, all their Craigslists to find a job. Oh, okay. And they, people land some sweet jobs like that. Hmm. There is some element of a gamble because you don't know what your captain's going to be like until you get up there. There are ways to ask around and figure out what your what kind of boat you're getting on, like calling the cannery, calling other boats, like doing your background research through okay. Facebook or whatever. Those are good tips, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, people do... There are horror stories of people being stuck on the boat eating PB&Js for 15 days and then they get like half the pay they were expecting. That's not super common, but it totally happens. Yeah. Just Um, dishonest captains, like not sharing how much they actually hauled in and that sort of thing. You know how much you caught. Yeah. Um, That's pretty hard to, to get around, but you know, people don't sign crew contracts. If you do go up there and you don't know the person like family make sure you sign a crew contract of some sort that makes 
it in writing what lays you're out the get terms paid. and everything. Yeah, yeah, that can save you a lot of grief. Do you have to show up to get these jobs, I, or can you, know, you apply online? Yeah, I would. I would totally go on Craigslist and not show up. I mean, if if your whole life, you know, if you're super nomadic and you're living in a camper or something, and you drove out to Alcan to Alaska, and then you have the luxury of like being in Homer and looking for a job and showing up and taking your time, that that makes a lot of sense and you could probably land a sweet job. But where we're at, you got to get a $1,500 round trip plane flight out to Iggy Gig. You can't drive there. Yeah. So nobody shows up on the docks there. And also if the only kind of job you're going to get that way is some unprepared boat or extenuating circumstances that lost a crew or something, you know, it's, it's normally not going to be like the dialed in boat that planned ahead and got a good crew beforehand, which is the kind of boat you want to be on. Got it. So I'd really try to just get it. Get it going on the phone. Well, it's good to know that that's an option because I was thinking, well, it's probably easier to show up, but I didn't think of the fact that some of these boats are so isolated that they're, they actually need to hire people through the internet or Skype or whatever because, yeah. like you said, people aren't going to show up in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, but don't get me wrong. People do show up to the docks, especially in like Washington. There's, there's fishing jobs all up and down the coast there. Um, and the reality of it is a lot of these captains are pretty old school. So yeah. even putting up a Craigslist ad is, uh, <laughs> you know, right. something they're not likely to do. So you might have to do that to get on certain boats. Yeah, that makes sense. They can't put it up, post it with the flip phone. That's no. not going to get it done. No. Uh, okay. So you want to give us an overview on the positions and job types. You mentioned captain and crew, um, but then you have all different types of fish you can fish for. And like, I mean, yeah. if you can give us a sort of a broad overview of the options for people, that'd be great. Yeah, for sure. So we're doing what's called gill netting. So we have a 900 foot long gill net and a six foot reel on the boat. The boats are all 32 feet long. Um, that's June and July. It's like one of the shortest seasons. That's why I'm drawn to it yeah. as, especially as a captain and owning a boat because it's out of sight, out of mind. I don't have to worry about the boat for the most part in the off season. Yeah. Obviously I got to send some supplies up there and, you know, fix whatever broke. But, um, then there's some other, uh, big fisheries in Alaska are seining. Seining, uh, seiners are anywhere from 30 to 80 feet, uh, the boats. And, uh, the fishing method, you lay what's called a purse seine around a school of fish and you have like a mothership boat and a small little skiff that pulls that net around the boat and scoops them all up Okay, and pulls up like an entire school of fish. Yeah. Uh, that they do that for all the types of salmon in, San Pedro, California, they do that for um, shrimp and sardines and squid. Sorry, not shrimp, just sardines and squid. Um, Those seasons tend to be a little longer. Mm. So, like, a general idea is the bigger the boat, the longer of the year it has to be fishing. Okay, got it. If you land a job like that, you sometimes have to be on board for a couple of the fisheries that they do. So, in Alaska, the saners, um, the crew members on saners work for, you know, four months or three or four months. Um, and then there's the huge boats like crab and Pollock, uh, that are like hundred to 250 feet. And that's like what's on deadliest catch and stuff like that. And you tend to be six months, um, committed to the boat through the winter. And it might sound great when you look at fishing King crab for three days and making 20 grand, but you also have to factor in that you got to fish less profitable fisheries, uh, for longer amounts of time through the rest of the winter. Normally when you land a job like that, um, so that's why I'm drawn to salmon. Uh, yeah. I don't personally want to be on a boat my whole life. 
Uh, so two months sounds pretty nice to me. Yeah. And even considering doing crab for a year or two, I just, I just don't know if I want to do that. Yeah. You're just, it's a very isolated environment. Okay. Yeah. Like even more so than yeah. what you're doing. And salmon, the salmon fishery draws like a lot of adventurous people, uh, like you said at the beginning, like people who want to travel or want to afford a different kind of lifestyle. And there are more women up there. Uh, one of my friends runs a boat and it's an all woman crew and, uh, she kills it. It's not super common. I was going to ask about that because it seems to be a male dominated job. What are the opportunities for women? Well, I'm having your girlfriend's coming on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a little apprehensive about having my girlfriend on board just because she hasn't done anything like that. Right. That's uh, like anybody that's new that hasn't done it. It would be yeah. wondering how they are going to handle it. Yeah, it's a little different because we're dating. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, the other crew... The this other could crew go members, either way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And back to like that coach's kid mentality, like when I was a 13-year-old uh, on, on board, the other crew see that person getting favors. Right. You know, like getting to cut corners and sleep a little more. And I'm, I talked to the guys about that already, and they're okay with it, and they're my good buddies. But uh, I do have to make mm. sure she busts ass a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Just to uphold her end of the deal. But, you know, she's excited for it. And I think it'll be cool for our lives. And, you know, traveling from here on out will be a lot different for us. Yeah. Should it go well. Right. <laughs> she gets to experience a big part of your life, essentially, by doing this. Exactly. At the very least, I wanted her to come visit because it's just such a uh, formative experience for me. And, you know, the fact that she's crewing the whole season, she's actually invested in it. If you go up there and visit, it's like you're looking at everyone working on the docks or they leave and go fishing and you like maybe come on the boat once. But it's a lot different when you're like invested in the right. future of the boat. Right. Now, that's true. Uh, women in general, is tough to get jobs up there? Or? Um, yeah. I, I mean, you know, the average captain's probably going to stereotype and try to hire some like 18-year-old wrestler who's trying to get a summer job through college. Um. But I know plenty of women who are very successful up there. Um, there's, you know, those women have to deal with the, the stigma. There's some captains up there who, like, have a, there's a lot of pride. And they have a really hard time, like, seeing a woman catch more fish than them. But my friend... Ego. Thor, yeah, the ego's pretty huge. Like, the captains can be their own emperor of their own microcosm. And they, like, choose what their crew members eat and when they go to the bathroom. And, you know... Right, right. Um... And my friend Thore has run a boat just as long as I have, you know, since she was 20, 22 or something. And, you know, she probably catches more fish than me Yeah, a lot, a lot of times. How do you keep your ego in check as a captain? Um, do you have a practice? Yeah, I don't know. You get, you get stomped on. I, when you're doing, like, the really competitive style of fishing that I do, tensions are high. And I just try to think, like, what's productive. Sometimes the productive thing for me to do is to, like, really yell at another boat to make them understand how they messed up. Yeah. Just to keep, like, the order of things where we fish because it's such a competitive thing. Right. You're, it's not coming from an ego place. It's more coming from, a like, a leadership place. Yeah. I mean, I think the most egotistical thing somebody can say is that they don't have an ego. But, <laughs> so, so, I mean, obviously there's some... <laughs> I do have an ego related to it. Yeah. And, it, you know, I don't know when it comes out. It's a hard thing to admit, I guess. Yeah. I, it's something everybody battles with, I think, in their daily life when to recognize if it's uh, 
affecting your behavior in a negative way. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do find myself putting on, I try to put on different faces when I'm there though. Like for instance, sometimes I'm trying to be super help, super helpful to another boat. It's, you can kind of relate it to like being a sociopath. <laughs> you know? so sometimes I got to appear like I'm being a nice guy when really I'm like getting a little more than I deserve. Right. And sometimes I just got to like really like blow up on somebody if they stepped over the line because I know they're timid and that'll make them not mess with me anymore. Right. It's Well, this is all part of developing this cohesive crew, right? And, and leadership and, and everybody's going to kind of interpret in a different way. I mean, what makes a great leader, right? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of way to, a lot of ways to be a good leader. Some of the, a lot of the captains up there are just like that infallible rock kind of person who keeps it all in with my career. That's like their leadership style, but everybody's yeah. different, right? I try to be just oh, as open as possible and tell my crew why I'm thinking a certain thing, which, you know, democracy on a boat, can be problematic sometimes, uh, but I like that they're so invested in the whole thing. I'm, I'm not trying to be a sociopath with my crew. I'm right. talking about interboat relationships right, when okay. I'm trying to like, you know, put my net in front of somebody else's. I gotcha. So yeah, because there's those battles you have to fight too out yeah. on the open seas. The main thing that I that I want to do with my crew is I just like want to lead by example with them. And so every time I go work with them on the back deck, I want to be just crushing it as hard as I can and never give up because right. if I'm taking breaks. I, I just don't want to expect something from them that I wouldn't do myself right. ever and make that, um, make that an option. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm trying to tell them to keep busting ass over and over and over again, when they're super tired, I better be doing more than that. Right. And that, that's a big weight they have to carry, but that's part of the job, right? Yeah. I don't mind the physical aspect of it. And the times that I get to go on the back deck and pull the fish out of the net is really fun for me because yeah. after 15 years, like the, the curve is crazy. Like you keep learning even past like 10 years. So I can probably pull, there's an egotistical thing for you. <laughs> I, I can probably pull fish out of the net like two or three times as fast as my yeah. next. I mean, that's just a fact. Yeah. You have the experience. Yeah. Yeah. That's how know? it goes. And so when I go back there, it's, it's fun for me to just like go as hard as I can and do the, being a crew to me is like a mental break because I'm just doing physical work. Because like the stresses of choosing where to fish and all that can mm -hmm. really weigh on you right. when you're running the boat. And I like, and I kind of sit there with bad posture on the captain's chair all day and just <laughs> tweak out. <laughs> um, I had a question about international workers. Is it tough to get a job as uh, somebody coming from Europe or somewhere else in the world? Do you see that often? My dad somehow, hopefully this isn't like on the record legally or anything. I'm sure it'll be fine. But uh, <laughs> he somehow has a lot of international guys. Like he's got like a Guatemalan guy, uh, Australian guy, a uh, Kiwi guy from New Zealand. Um, I think there was some forgery of papers going on. Uh, that's the sort of environment where there's a lot of like ex-cons and stuff doing shady stuff. So I think there's ways to do it. Right. I don't want to advise anyone on exactly how. I haven't hired anyone illegal, okay. but I know that that happens a lot. I was just trying to get the vibe on the industry because, for example, we're in Colorado. You know, you go up to the ski resorts, and a lot of people come, mm -hmm. say, from Argentina or different countries, yeah. uh, to work at the ski resorts for the season. Oh, you're so talking that, legal work visas. Yeah, yeah, they get legal work <laughs> visas, and that's sort of a thing. Yeah. But it doesn't sound like in this industry that's really a thing. Yeah, as the, much. the thing for me and a lot of—I mean, pretty much everyone—is I want to hire people who have a likelihood of returning. Right. You know, so many people say, I that just want to go yeah. try this. And the reality of a work visa is that person, unless they're like on track for citizenship, isn't likely to be a returning crew. Right. And I don't want to just like toss somebody on the boat who wants to check it out. Right. Yeah. Especially from the 
the business perspective, it's a, you don't, I mean, that's a, actually a good tip for somebody that's like looking to do this. Even yeah. if you're thinking you're only going to do it for a season, you probably shouldn't represent yourself that way because you're not going to get a spot but somewhere. It's just like tons of things though. Like before you do it, you don't know if you're going to like it. Right. And I understand that too, as just everyone up there, but I'm definitely looking at, you know, cultivating like the perfect look for me is like a 16 year old hire them on as my new guy at the low percentage. And then through high school, they have a summer job and then they're going to college and they keep coming back. And then I right. get a seven year returner and then they get out of college and they want to travel. So they keep doing it for a while. Yeah. And then I have like eight year returners on my boat and right. just like my brother and I were for my dad. Yeah. Um, I'm not hiring somebody who's like, Oh, I want to give it a look. And they have like yeah. some nine to five job lined up right afterwards. Right. You know. Yeah, it just doesn't make any sense for you. Yeah. And is it competitive? Are there this many people applying for jobs? How competitive is it? I, I don't Hard know how say. it is for other boats. I mean, I, um, as you saw at the coffee shop the other day, I'm a talker, and so I'm constantly <laughs> telling people about it. But I yeah. always have like a lineup of 10 guys wanting to come. Okay, yeah. Um, and then I pick the most qualified. That sounds fairly competitive. Yeah, I Let's pick talk- the most qualified or my girlfriend. <laughs> I, I mentioned... <laughs> <laughs> nepotism i mentioned uh, earlier the the tv shows that have sort of popularized this uh-huh. this whole industry i've never seen that I, I world's deadliest catch i know that's probably the biggest one right i think there's a few other ones yeah uh have you watched them what are some of the differences between what you see and what you get yeah right. yeah i mean you make a reality TV show out of anything, which yeah. seems to be everything in Alaska now. Reality TV with air quotes. Yeah, they really dramatize everything. There was right. a show, uh, I think four years back, called Battle on the Bay on Animal Planet that was filmed within 100 yards of my boat. We're in the background of that of the shots sometimes. Okay, yeah. And we didn't know that it was being filmed. There's like low-flying helicopters that we thought were the state troopers mm. in and amongst the boats. And also, they kind of pick like the uh, the real aggressive hard to get along with guys sure for the most part they have to cast sort of they have to cast it yeah with real people yeah and like the worst thing you could do is make a fisherman famous you know <laughs> so these guys are trying to make it even more dramatic and they they're doing things like just like baiting you into retaliation right you know they're just doing things that you like never would do as a boat like just like towing their net over yours or something like that. Okay, and just to just to create some drama for the yeah, show. Yeah, it was pretty obnoxious. It really disrupted the uh, delicate dance. Um, so funny. This is where the line... I mean, of course, when you turn cameras on something, you can never truly capture reality with a camera in that way because it's changing the reality just by having a camera present. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know... Changing on- people's behaviors, changing things that happen. If I'm showing somebody what it's like, I still point them to Battle on the Bay episodes because it's really well filmed. And yeah. I don't, you know, Max, I have like a GoPro that has some horrible shot that's got salt water all over the lens right. while you can see what it's like. However, if my boat was that dramatic, I would like completely swap crews yeah, okay. within a year. Yeah, know? okay, yeah. So you get the vibe of the experience, but uh, from a visual perspective and from a work perspective, but yeah. not necessarily... All the, it's not always that much drama going yeah, with it. If, so if the crew are all fighting like that all the time. They're wasting so much energy being right. mad. I'm trying to like not yell and communicate with hand signals as much as possible, just because like tensions get. I high. mean, if you took if you filmed your entire season 24/7 and then just edited clips yeah. down, you could probably create something 
that looks dramatic, right? Yeah, and, I guess you're right. If you saw like the windows blow out and then us like crying, right? <laughs> <laughs> like the 15 year old back there <laughs> just freaking out. I guess you could do that if you took yeah. it out of context. Yeah, but you know, just like it's I don't know. I guess I do it too. When I was telling you about what it's like, I instantly tell you how uh, how crazy and horrible it can be and not ha- those nice days where you're looking at like an Alaskan sunset for three hours because the sun doesn't really set. And yeah. It can be really beautiful and calm too. What about the dangers? Uh, I think everybody knows this isn't the safest job you can apply for. This isn't working at the the water slide, the yeah. theme park. Yeah. Yeah, people die, right? I mean, they yeah. get seriously injured. You know, the only deaths that I've been around in 16 years were both people drinking on shore. Okay. And it's really? kind of like, there's there's a lot of hazards on shore because it's not like OSHA standards, you know? Mm. There's like uh, forklifts and stuff all over the place. Okay, and yeah. My, da- my dad had a crew the year before I came up, uh, flip a three-wheeler and uh, on the beach and the tide came in on them. And they're horrible stories to hear, but they're not... But that's not really... They don't boat, go down right? how people... Th- it's not like people are alert on a boat and things like that happen very often. You know, you hear so, a lot about like hand cuts. Is and, this a misconception that it's a very dangerous thing? I mean, it sounds like it can be for sure, but... I'm pretty sure that our fishery actually got uh, rated as more dangerous than crabbing is now uh, because of the rules of the game changed for crabbing mm-hmm. because it was labeled as like the deadliest job. Right. Um, so it is very dangerous, but... You know, it's it's so situational and um, subjective. Like, I've had one cut on my finger in 16 years of doing it because I'm generally risk-averse person, but there's some guys who just are magnets and they don't look or they want to be a hero and grab some line that's going overboard rather than protect themselves. And their first thought is, like, how do I, you know, how do I be an epic crew and, right. and not, like, help, like, Protect hurt myself. Yeah. And it's really tough for me because, you know, that's another thing hiring my friends. I had one of my best friends roll his foot up in the anchor winch last year. And that is the sort of thing that, like, turns your foot into bacon. He got really lucky and it was Uh, only a bruise. Yeah. Wow. He also broke his rib the day before, um, falling and hitting the railing of the boat. And, you know, stuff like that happens. Um, Since then, he's been very safe. But it's definitely a possibility. But like I said, if if you really, really focus on it and you don't get super drunk when you're on shore or something, you know. You, yeah. Some people are just looking looking for crazy right. craziness, you know? It attracts a certain type of person, I imagine, too. So there's that element too. You know, you're not getting the yeah. uh, you're not getting the accountant pool. Yeah, the real right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the real sensitive people or sorry, uh, sensible people are fine. Yeah. You know. I've had some situations that freaked me out over the course of 16, 17 years of doing it, especially when I was a younger kid and I didn't know how to like stand away from the tight rope that's about mm-hmm. to snap or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. I'm not personally super worried about it. Yeah. So outside of Craigslist and showing up in the docks, any other resources you want to share for people to just research or to check these things out? Yeah. Um, Checking out some of those. Those shows are a good way to see it, but really keep really try to insulate yourself from the drama that's going on if you can or mm-hmm. keep that at arm's length because yeah. a productive boat is not an arguing boat. Um, check it out on Craigslist. and I don't know. I think the main thing to consider if you're relating it to a travel lifestyle is 
it's kind of a means to an end sort of thing. You know, I don't want to make it feel like you, you know, I, I feel kind of bad saying you just like go to Alaska to extract your monetary resource and then get out of there and not care about the place you're in. Cause while I'm starting to like become more in touch with like being a part of that environment up there, yeah. but you can like make your money. You can like bust ass and go make your money and then travel. Like my brother and sister-in-law have a child and they live in Norway and they've traveled 10 months a year for 11 years and he's supported both of them off fishing. So it can be a really crazy thing. So he goes fishing for two months and comes back and lives in Norway for 10 months. Well, they used to live in Bali and they traveled all around the world and they just rent a spot in like Koh Tao, Thailand. Um, and now they have a kid and it's still working for them. And, you know, they're really good at managing their money and mm -hmm. you can't depend on the income. So there's that flip side. It's like if you're trying to get a loan on a house or something, it's not like you have some sort of like um, salary yeah. to get loans. So he's dealing with like upfront cash more. Well, that was the other crazy thing when we were when we met just the other day that you were like, "Oh, I'm going to Norway this week," and I was like, "Oh, I live in Norway. This yeah. is nuts." And yeah. you know, it was just one of those serendipitous things. And then another guy walked in, and you're like, "Oh, this guy lives in Oslo six months out of the year where I live." Yeah, and it was just kind of funny. So you're actually going to Norway tomorrow. Yeah, to I'm visit going, your brother. Um, and another captain in our radio group is going out there too. Okay, um, we're gonna do a lot of backcountry skiing, and I'm gonna get to see my uh, my niece for the first time. That's that'll be awesome, exciting. man. Yeah, it'll be it'll be congratulations. Really cool. Yeah, that's super exciting, and uh, it's really funny that you're I'm here and you're going that way. It's just totally random, <laughs> but uh, yeah. You've been very generous with your time, and I don't uh, want to hold you up anymore because I know you got some packing to do and things like that. I feel like we covered a ton yeah. with this, uh, not only just from like a sort of fact perspective and like getting tips on the jobs and advice and everything, but getting to hear your story, what it's really like on one of these boats. It's just like one of the big things I was interested in in chatting with you about, and of course, travel and how this can fit into a life of travel. And it sounds like this is one of those things where, hey, I mean, maybe this is hitting your ears, and you're like damn, like I'm up for that adventure, you know, maybe this is something to look into something that you can use to fuel your travels, whether you're just on the road or, you know, you want to take your summer work, make a bunch of money and use that to travel the world. Uh, it's just another one of those things you can consider. Um, you know, the only thing we didn't really touch on are some of the, I know you're interested in some of the sustainability, um, issues or uh, maybe not issues, but you know, some of those subjects around fishing, and I don't know if you want to get too into that right now. But yeah, no, I think I can. I think I can talk about it with some brevity. Finally, yeah, <laughs> this is the sort of thing I could go into a three-hour discussion about. But right. um, you know, people people look at commercial fishing and think overfishing, which globally is pretty accurate. Um, but if you look at how fisheries are managed in Alaska. Um, it can be a lot different than that. And I didn't get into salmon fishing when I was 13 because I thought it was the, an awesome, sustainable thing to be doing. It was just what my family did. Right. But, um, you know, I studied ecology in school. And uh, after looking at it through a lot of different lenses, it looks to me um, and to a lot of people as one of the most sustainable food sources around. Um, the Salmon's life cycle is what you call a nadromous. So they're born in a river... Uh, and then they migrate around the ocean and return to that river uh, with a reproductive strategy that kind of like floods the river with a ton of fish. So a biologist uses this, the fisherman as like a gatekeeper 
and they regulate the bell curve of fish coming into that river to optimize um, the output of that river. So if, if too many fish make it up the river, they kick up each other's eggs and their carcasses create a bacterial, um, they, they create a bacterial bloom that depletes the dissolved oxygen content of that river and lowers egg survival. Hmm. So they kind of decide like, what's the, what's the prime number of fish and let's regulate it every year. So the, um, fishermen catch some, but we also hit that number every year hmm. and we wouldn't fish if, if that amount of fish didn't make it up the river. We right. would, just wouldn't have a fishery that year. Okay. Um, and it's been going on for a hundred years and it's a very pristine habitat, uh, pending the pebble mine hmm. coming into effect if anyone's familiar with that. But, um, salmon runs just used to be all on the West coast of Alaska or of Washington and British Columbia, like in the Fraser river and the Columbia river. But now hydroelectric power has, uh, seriously depleted those runs. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bristol Bay is the biggest sa- salmon run in the world. And there's no hydroelectric power up there. Cause it's kind of like out in the middle of nowhere in the tundra. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, very fortunate to be in a fishery that is so viable like that and continues to be when you look at other fisheries, like you know, tuna and things like that, where you just kind of like choose how much you want to deplete the population. Mm. It's not like that yeah, because we're dealing with a surplus every year. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's a, I mean, this is a huge topic that you could do an hours long show on, I'm sure. Oh, you know, this idea of overfishing and sustainability and everything, but yeah, sounds like there's something happening up in Alaska, at least to manage this, at least in the area you're at. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really cool to see, um, wild salmon getting some more traction like uh like patagonia the one food product they have in their store is wild alaskan smoked salmon and um you know with a company with that much reputation for environmental sustainability to choose that as their food product really it makes me happy kind of says something yeah yeah still the general public isn't super aware of wild salmon and how it differs from other fisheries yeah um but you know it's 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 at least a marketable product and some people are aware and i can even convince vegans to eat wild salmon most of the time my girlfriend was vegan for a long time and i made a deal where i'd stop eating beef if she started eating wild salmon and it worked i imagine that you have a few <laughs> uh, good salmon recipes up your sleeve <laughs> yeah yeah kind of i don't know some people some people are a lot more dialed than me i'm just kind of lazy with it it's like an irish person eating potatoes i just don't think about it yeah uh, that's funny. Have that much of it, but. Do you, uh, last question, cause you strike me as a pretty social guy. Do you struggle at all with uh, isolation in some of these smaller areas? Is that something that's like a natural part of your personality that you've embraced or? Yeah, I can be extroverted to a fault. That's why I pick friends as crew. Uh, we play music on the boat and stuff like that. And sometimes when I'm fishing, I just use my flip phone and have like hour long conversations with all of my friends that I haven't talked to in a while. Yeah. Cause I go crazy. The radio chatter up there can be a little bit uh, tiring sometimes. It's just uh, old, grungy fishermen like, yeah, doing pretty well over here. Do you guys have nicknames or anything? (laughs) (laughs) Nobody can pronounce my boat name. It's my my, uh, Polish girlfriend's nickname. It's Pies Chidelko. (laughs) And uh, so it means little cuddler in Polish. Okay. So people call us Little Spoon on the radio. Because they can't pronounce the boat name. <laughs> but I kind of signed myself up for that by picking right. a Polish word as my boat right, name. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, uh, man, thank you so much. It was just a pleasure to chat with you, get to know you, and uh, have a good time in Norway. Usually when I do these in-person things, I like to high-five it out. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. And, <laughs> yeah, thanks, Jason. Um, yeah, I really appreciate a... your time, Patrick. Thanks, Jason. Thanks I've had so a great much. time. Cool. Great time doing this. Awesome. Yeah. See ya. There you have it. My conversation with Patrick. I want to thank him once again for 
talking to a stranger, me, who he just met the other day at work. And next thing you know, we're sitting down for breakfast and having this conversation. I loved chatting with him and it was an honor to get it to share it with you. As always, my friend, you, the Zero to Travel Caravan, all the listeners out there, united by this love of travel. I feel each and every one of you through this microphone. I really do. And I do want to give a shout out quickly to somebody who wrote me an email just the other day. Do you read all these emails? So if you haven't written yet or dropped me a line and just checked in, you can always hit me up at jason at zerototravel.com. And this email was from Shane. And I'll read you a snippet of it. He says, I started listening to your show while I was tirelessly working and traveling around the country as VP of sales for a boutique Sonoma County winery. After 11 years in the wine business, selling alcohol became a mundane routine to me and I knew I needed a change. So I put in my notice and hit the road. Your podcast was a big part of the inspiration I needed to leave my job for adventure. Insane, I know. That's what he says. I agree. He goes on to say, back in 2015 or 2016, I was thinking about taking a bicycle journey and I came across your episodes on epic bike rides. I listened to them over and over and convinced myself to go for it. After leaving my job in the summer of 2017, I rode across the United States. It was an experience of a lifetime and I was hooked so much so that the following summer, I cycled across 12 countries in Europe. Wow. Congratulations. And he just goes on to share more of a story. The cycling led to a teaching job in Spain. In Spain, he started uh, writing books after listening to one of my episodes with Coach Azul. And now he is living in Spain, working on books. And he hopes to publish the first one in about a month from now, from the time of this recording. And just goes on to say some nice words. You've been a major inspiration in my life. Want to take time to thank you. Uh, you chasing your travel dreams have been inspiration for me to chase my dreams. You shined your flashlight into the dark and I followed it into the unknown. Thank you, my friend Shane. And uh, wow, I just get chills reading this. I want to say thank you and congratulations to him. And I just, I loved this email because you can see how one thing just leads to the next, right? He took the cycling trip across the United States, ended up then living in Spain, doing some teaching, listening to podcasts, being open to new possibilities, new directions, new different ways of travel, and just living it, just doing it. So I I really want to give Shane some props here and say, congrats. He also offered me a place to crash in Spain. He's living in Malaga. So hey, I might have to take you up on that one day, Shane. Thank you so much for sharing. I, I wanted to share this with you because I love sharing stories from the community. And if Shane's story inspires you, then even, even one person out there, then it, it's worth it. I mean, that's what this is all about. This is a community-powered show. I make this podcast for you each and every week for the last five plus years. And I'm going to keep doing it and doing it and doing it because I love helping people travel more, filling their lives with travel. It's what I'm here to do. It's what I'm doing. And I hope I'm doing a good job. If you have any feedback, guests you want me to have on, just want to check in. You can always drop me a line again, Jason at ZeroToTravel.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everybody out there in the Zero to Travel caravan, the listening community. Much appreciated. I'm going to have to leave you with a fishing quote a funny one from one of my favorite comedians. In just a second, first, a quick thank you to Tortuga Backpacks for supporting today's show, zerototravel.com slash Tortuga. Check it out because you're going to see a page with all of the packs I recommend and you get 10% off anything you order by just typing in the promo code TRAVEL when you check out. So if you need a new backpack or you got a trip coming up, even if it's just a day pack or a a full-size pack that you want to travel for months with or years with or just a few weeks with, they got... 
pretty much something for everybody. And you can get 10% off just from listening to this show. And I do love these packs. Zero to travel.com slash Tortuga. 10% off with the promo code travel. You can't forget that word, the word travel. You're going to remember that one. And that's a special discount for Zero to Travel listeners. And if you do purchase anything, you'll also be supporting the show as I am an affiliate for Tortuga. And I've had a long relationship with them. I use their products. So just want to be transparent with that and uh, hook you up with that discount. If it's helpful, go ahead and use it. Pick up a new pack. You don't have to waste your time doing all the research. I'm curating them all for you on that page. And I'll leave that link in the show notes. Now, let me get to this quote from Mr. Stephen Wright, who's a hilarious comedian. If you've never heard him, you can YouTube some of his stuff. He says, there's a fine line between fishing and just standing on the shore like an idiot. (laughs) Thanks again for your time. And I'll see you next time. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality. 